previously on Hacker Valley Red. When you're talking about hacking APIs, you have the ability to affect life and safety. That's something you're driving around with your family in. You know, we're reversing backwards from the symptom to find the cause, right? And trying to fix the cause of that symptom. I think you need to first start with what it is that you're passionate about because that's what will keep you up burning both ends of the candle. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Welcome back to Hacker Valley Red. This episode, we speak to Lori Peters-James, a criminologist and profiler for cybercrime incidents. Chris and I have spent our careers as incident responders preventing the attack before law enforcement intervention. Before this episode, we never contemplated what should be the consequence for an individual that has performed a serious crime? And better yet, would it be more impactful for civilization to get them to become one of the defenders after being caught? All of this is discussed in this episode. It's super exciting. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, especially since it's my favorite time of the year, and that's when we record Hacker Valley Red. This season is themed A Hacker's Mind, and to explore this topic, we've brought in Lori Peters-James. Lori is a forensic criminologist, profiler with more than 20 years of experience in intelligence analysis and incident response. Lori has frequented as an expert witness in criminal and civil matters for cybercrime incidents. And Lori is a best-selling author and media commentator. There's much more that we're going to jump into during this episode. But most importantly, Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Lori, when we were getting ready for this season, we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a criminologist or a profiler on the season to talk about the mind of a criminal hacker? And when we stumbled across you and the work that you were doing, we said we had to get you on the podcast. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Well, my background, I started my career in, in the military as an air traffic controller. Then from there, I moved into the intelligence sphere and investigations, that type of work. And then um, recently, I opened a company called Cyberetti, and we specialize in the management of criminal incidents from the time of the incident happening right through to prosecution. And to that end, I do all the pre-sentence reports and make the, 
the sentence recommendations for the for the magistrates and the judges that aren't qualified in the psychological aspects and of course the cyber incident management aspect as well. So often the layperson doesn't really get the damages that can be so easily linked to cybercrime because they don't understand the systems too well. So that's where I come in. I, I point out the incidents, I look at the backgrounds, the backgrounds of the offenders, why they behave in certain manners, what are the driving forces, the motivations, the personality profiles, how they justify their actions. So that's all part of my, my work. So when did that interest in the mind of the criminals really come into play in your world? What was it about that subject matter that made it so exciting for you? Well, a couple of years ago in 2001, a long year, a few years ago now, I went to work for a man who was an advocate of the High Court of South Africa. And while I was there, I found out that he was a sexual sadist, a antisocial personality disorder, a narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, his predation was predominantly on children, underage minors. And he, together with another advocate, his girlfriend, were working together to take these kids out of orphanages and sexually abuse them over weekends under the guise of giving them some assistance and exposing them to the legal community and a good life. And he was later caught and arrested. I didn't know what he was doing at the time, but he approached me as well and invited me to dinner. And I just got such a creepy feeling. And when all of this came out, that was where my interest came in because I hadn't seen it in him because I believed he was an advocate. You take it at face value that an advocate should be an upstanding person. So I didn't really think about him being a sexual predator. And then he was. And then from there, I testified against him at, in court. And my interest grew in how does the mind of a, an, an offender like this work? Because we think of offenders as low level. We don't really think of them as being in high-end professions. Right. That is, that's a wild story and a wild start to get you know the, the excitement about this field. And on that same note, I, I would be curious, do criminals think about the punishment? I know that you said that you're working on criminal sanctions and also trying to identify the right amount of punishment. But do criminals even think about that part when they are doing the crime? You know, some do and some don't. So, for example, um, you know, the, the, a really good argument to demonstrate this is the death penalty. So in murders, the death penalty is often handed down, but I believe it should be in planned criminality because there you have time to consider your actions. Whereas you just kill somebody in the heat of the moment, you really don't think about the punishment. But with hackers, it's quite interesting. They have enough time to consider the crime and what they're doing and to stop it but they believe rather than taking into account, they know the sanctions can be heavy, but they actually believe they won't get caught. So they hide behind that feeling that they won't get caught, A, eh? and that what they're doing is the in the public interest or for the public good. So they see themselves as Robin Hoods. And for that reason, they're prepared to risk it. That's unbelievably interesting that the fact that the time it takes to commit a crime in cyber is so long that they almost have to have that in the back of their mind somewhere, but they feel like they can't get caught and they have hubris that 
I'm so good, I'm going to be able to cover my tracks and no one's going to be able to find me. Is there anything else that's different about the mind of a criminal hacker versus a standard brick and mortar criminal? Oh, yes, there's a couple of things, obviously. Uh, it depends on also your brick and mortar criminal may be working in different aspects. So the, the motivations are sometimes different, like with serial killing, for example, all of your motivation is fantasy based. And with a hacker, um, it's usually based in the challenge. They enjoy the challenge that they get out of the, 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 the actual criminal ev- behavior and event. And they enjoy the fact that they're seen as, as Robin Hoods, really and truly. So they, they, they are looking for um, sort of, um, what do you call it, praise from their peers and to be seen as fantastic hackers in the eyes of their peers. That is such a cool thing to think about is that even though they are criminals, they are still looking for validation from their community. Hmm. And that's a lot like regular cybersecurity practitioners in in our field. Uh, One thing that you mentioned uh, during our earlier conversations is that something similar happened with your son when it came to the challenge of work and changing his trajectory. Could you talk a little bit about that story and how you related it to cybersecurity? Okay, well, my son is a a certified ethical hacker and a SOC engineer at the same time. So he specialized in the certified ethical hacking initially, which is your attack portfolios or your offensive portfolio. And then later on, he moved into the defensive portfolio. But as a child, he was a loner. He was an only child. He was forced to entertain himself um, a lot of the time. And he turned to gaming. And with gaming, he became completely obsessed. And I mean, this sounds terrible. His mommy is a profiler and I should have been able to control that. But I couldn't because he, he gamed even at night when I would go to bed. He would be on the computer. He was completely and totally addicted to gaming. It got so bad that he didn't want to work at all. He didn't want to have a profession at all. He wasn't interested. He wanted to game. Eventually, I had to research the gaming personality because and try and link that to a profession where he would actually be stimulated. And from that, I I did a lot of research and I found out that gamers are very good hackers because they are tend to be addictive personalities as well. They get addicted to the gaming. One thing that you need in a hacker is resilience. A gamer learns if you fail, you get up, you go again. You fail, you get up, you go again. You try different methodology, different methodology, different tactics, different tactics. And it's exactly the same with a hacker. A hacker has to be versatile and resilient. So he's got to be able to look for that gap all the time. If that doesn't work, come again. If that doesn't work, come again. So it's one of the, it's the most important trait in a hacker. I'm sure any of our young listeners can really relate to feeling that way, not really knowing what you want to do, but having a strong passion in something, especially something like gaming. It almost takes me back to when I was a kid. I really stopped gaming because I got super addicted. I'll be honest. I really wanted to be a hacker. And in some ways, I wanted to break into all types of computer systems and maybe even do some bad things. But I had this fantasy in my mind that, I would be the best hacker in the world and one day 
the NSA or some type of government agency would call me and recruit me. And then I would write off in the distance as, you know, doing very ethical hacking activities. Is that ever the case? It, it is. And also because they get support from their own community. So where gaming is a very closed community, they're online together, they get the social, they, they play with each other, they have a great relationship. It's the same with hacking. They're looking for that community. And in the ha- with hacking, it's an invisible community with complex, interconnected, inchoate, anti-authoritarian political consciousness. And they have their own norms of uh, reciprocity and sophisticated socialization rituals. So they they are very much cohesive and they get a sense of belonging in these communities and they assist each other. So they also get that social need filled by being part of that invisible community. You know, they always say that you are the sum of your five closest friends. And so I would have to imagine in these communities where people often feel like misfits, a lot of folks in cybersecurity feel like misfits. So I feel like that's probably echoed in the hacker, the criminal hacker community. Now you have your five best friends are unbelievably good at hacking. And you talk about that resilience. So now they want to impress those hackers that they have befriended. So they're going to try again and again. They're going to research. They're going to study. How can someone on the defensive side of cybersecurity even compete with that type of workmanship or workpersonship where you're working with these hackers every day? You're learning, you're trying, you're failing over and over and over again. How can we replicate that on the defensive side where People are getting inundated with alerts. They're feeling burnt out because they're being so reactive. What are some of the ways that we can bring some of that into the cybersecurity community? Well, I think the the, the development of SOC and offsite monitoring has opened that up to a lot of companies now, whereas initially um, it was too expensive to... to, to have your own SOC. Now it's becoming a possibility, especially in the bigger companies. So that's good. But at the end of the day, you can't mediate it because it changes at such a fast pace. So unfortunately, defense is always playing catch up to attack. So the defensive side will and will always play defense to the offensive side. And it has to be able to change direction on the fly. And that's what's important, is to have properly trained, high-value SOC engineers that are capable of rapid adaption and also to try and write predictive software that can predict which way the offensive is going to move and try to combat that ahead of time. It's exactly the same as what we do with profiling. We have deductive and predictive profiling. So we try and look at the trends and then we write processes to evaluate what's going to happen based on the current trends and how they're flowing. Can you walk us through maybe a story that you've had when working a cybercrime incident? Typically, from our perspective, we see the incident from like a technology perspective, like, hey, this alert popped up with this information, but not necessarily from a law enforcement or criminologist perspective. What what is the story uh, that you can share about working an incident that's related to cybercrime? 
Okay, well, I've got a very, very interesting little little story to tell. It was a couple of years ago, and this deals with the internal threat aspect because remember that hackers are not only external, they're internal as well. So you may have a problem with data theft and all these types of crimes from, from internal or manipulation of the systems by internal people. So this little girl was the operations director of the bank. And they asked her to correct an error on the main GL account of the bank, which is the interest holding account. So it's not an account that the bank transacts on, excepting to pay out interest once the interest term has been reached, uh, whether the money's been invested for a year or two years. So this account sat at about 57 million for all the time. It never really drops below 57 million because there's, you know, investments are withdrawn and then they reinvested and so on or you get additional investments what she learned to do was to transfer money out of the bank and pay all her accounts and buy various um, machines and all sorts of things she wanted to start businesses and buy property and all sorts of things so what she would do is she would use the transacting accounts transfer the money out of the bank and then having found out about the funds in the GL account, she would move the the money from the GL account to plug the hole in the transacting account, which was audited. But it, it, it was always balanced from the GL account. So she began to use the GL account as her personal as her personal money. And she did this over and over, 27, 37, I think it was 27 times over a period of three years. And it ended up being quite a lot of money. And then she made a critical error. And there's where you can talk about your systems coming into play from a defensive point of view. Although the, the, the parameters were set too high, they should have been set to a much lower figure. So what she did was she then transferred a, an amount that exceeded 1% of the GL account and the system flagged it. Then we waited for her to commit the crime again, which she did within a couple of months. She again transferred out a million. She bought another property. And from there, we knew exactly what to do and how to track it. So there was a, a classic example of a person who had learned to hack a system and managed to use the main GL account of a bank as her personal piggy bank. Wow. And that's interesting because you you would think that there would be always some play on empathy when it comes to any of these types of crimes. I would think that that person, as she was taking some of that money, would think I'm hurting other people. But it might have been such a separation because she felt like this is a big bank. There are millions of dollars here. They're not even going to miss this money. So that's where you have moral disengagement. So these are the cognitive processes that allow the justification of deviant behavior because people don't engage in morally deviant behavior without justifying it. Once they can justify the behavior, it's then perceived by them as personally and socially acceptable to that person and they can happily engage in the moral behavior. So there you also have to look at, you have, you know, what is the motivation behind this? Are they selfish motives or is it just competing principles, for example? But moral disengagement is a, is a huge thing with the hacking community, as is the concept of ethical flexibility. 
up until this point, I was thinking that a lot of criminal hackers must be sociopaths. They must have completely disengaged from humanity to be able to do these things to people. But now that you're mentioning that they're doing it for either socioeconomic reasons or even political reasons, that's their justification to do wrong. So would you say that the majority of these folks are normal people just like you and I, but they just have a different justification structure in order to do these crimes? Yeah, they've managed to justify the the behavior no matter what it is. So they, they've now either justified it as I'm saving the world by exposing corrupt companies or um, I need to redistribute the wealth a little bit or I need to expose this government or this bank has got really bad policies. I'm going to take them down so that I can help the little people. So it depends on how they justify it. There's also, of course, the ethical flexibility where youngsters today, especially because of the way that hackers are treated, they are ethically flexible. So they don't have a strong line on what is ethical and what isn't because we tell them hacking is bad, hacking is criminal, hacking is wrong. But if you hack and you and you you create a fabulous virus, then all the antivirus companies or the government wants to hire you to become to assist them with defense. So you get massive reward for that. And it's almost you see what I'm saying. There's no real punishment because you destroy millions of computers with a really good virus, and what do you get for that? Oh, a great job with Norton antivirus. Right. Hmm. That that does sound a little strange from your perspective. Like, what kind of things are you seeing for the punishment? Is there like jobs after after it, like you're you're mentioning? What typically occurs for like the cyber criminals and their criminal sanctions? The sanctions vary hugely. So they can get anything from a fine and a one year sentence to a 20 year sentence, depending on the seriousness of the offense and the amount of damage that's actually been done. But you also have another problem in all of this, and that is that companies inflate the damages for insurance purposes, and this results in increased sentence severity. So, you know, people are opportunistic, and even the companies that are hacked are opportunistic. It's very difficult to quantify damage so they inflate the damages for insurance purposes, and then the sentence gets increased. But with the hackers, if it's a really good hacker, and I'm not talking the middle of the road little chap that's kind of, you know, you get the different categories of, of hackers as well, but I'm talking about right. an elite hacker, not a kiddie hacker. So mm-hmm. in actual somebody that's a real programmer with a true grasp of systems, we classify as elite hackers. They write the tools. And the kiddies download the tools and use the exploits created by the elites. If it's a real elite and he's in prison, the chances are he will be given some sort of relief in his sentence and employed by the CIA, the FBI, some uh, law enforcement. And when he gets out, possibly a hacking company. The the other big problem is that they are glamorized in the media. So everybody sees them as as hackers are talented and gifted individuals, and then they get celebrity status. So then they get paid to write books and tell their stories, so yeah. which they can actually do while they're in prison. And then they come out and they release the book. I mean, if you take wow. somebody like so Mark I- Bean, 
he was voted as one of the top 100 smartest people in the world by New York Magazine. Mm. <laughs> and the red carpet was rolled out from for him wherever he went. That's so true. And you think, you know, one of the main things about humanity and just humans in general is we want to be seen. We want to be validated. And so now you have this avenue where you can make money. You, If you get caught, you basically become a superstar celebrity if it's a big enough hack. And then more likely than not, you're going to get a job after you do your sentence. So you're almost making it pretty enticing to be a criminal hacker at this point. Is there something behind that? Because one one of the things that I did see during my time in cybersecurity doing these investigations is whenever someone is caught, there's usually a slowdown period where everyone kind of gets quiet for a little bit, but then they slowly pick up steam. Is that something that you think is going to be muted in the future because people are becoming more uh, confident in their abilities, or is that still like an ebb and flow for, for criminality? Look, I think what we're seeing is more and more hacking tools available. So I think you're going to have more and more sort of kiddies out there using the, the exploits created by the elites. It's not difficult to breach a system. You just need a, a really good tool and some basic knowledge now. I mean, a one-year CEH course will get you there and you can do most of it online. Additionally, there's incredibly good tutorials on YouTube and things uh, and all the tools. And if you're a master of the dark web, well, everything's available. So, yeah, I think we're going to see increased hacking also with COVID, with people being at home. They've got time on their hands. They're not being monitored so much by their, their work. There's much more opportunity as all these personal computers are now on on networks at home, you know, sort of getting into the company. So there's more opportunity. They've had to open up for that. So I think we're going to see increased kiddie hacking. Um, it takes a while longer to to become an elite, and but they tend to be the more dangerous because, because they're writing the real program. So there's little way of predicting what they're going to do. The exploits that are used by the kiddies and uh, in these attacks but we kind of know how to defend against them once they really hit the market so yeah i think i think that it's um it's going to be very interesting going forward given the situation that that covid has has created i think we're still going to be sitting in a covid situation for at least another two years because this right. virus is going to mutate. It is going to play havoc. A lot of companies don't want to go back to the office because they've seen that there's massive savings. And some of their employees are more productive at home. They don't spend an hour in the traffic and three hours kind of like calming down from the experience in the traffic. So they're saving time. They're saving money on coffee, on toilet paper, on everything else. But the problem is there's no physical control so you can control your building i mean but then again i mean we've had exploits where we've had the the building system the 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 fingerprint system the access control systems hacked by our own hackers in order to show people like the 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 minerals board how vulnerable these systems are we just hacked into their system in five minutes and took control of the access control and locked them all out of their own building so on the one hand, you've got more control in the buildings um, when your employees are there and you can monitor with cameras and things what they're doing or their systems on with user behavior tools. 
But on the other hand, now at home, as I said, you've got a, a more vulnerable networks, more traffic on the networks, more people accessing remotely, which is going to increase opportunity. And that's not even if we figure out um, the phishing and the social engineering side. I mean, that's out of control. Right. Yeah, there's so much opportunity on the attacker side, especially, and even on the defender side. We talk about, is there a skill shortage or is there a knowledge shortage in in cybersecurity? And that's a debatable question. I think there's a lot that we can do from getting more people in the field and trained. What about the world of criminology? Is there a high bar of entry for people to do the things that you do? And what are the opportunities out there? There are definitely a lot of opportunities. I actually work for, well, I'm the, I'm, I'm, I've also recently been appointed. I'm now the program director for the Global Counter-Terror Institute Forensics Program. So for the training, we, we're providing a lot of high-end training for counter-terrorism. There's definitely work. I think there's going to be more work. It's going to be, a, it's already become a us versus them <laughs> sort of system with, with crime. Um, there will always be crime, so there will always be opportunity. You have all the government employees. And then, as I said, if you have the drive and you have the inclination and the education, you can work like I do as a consultant to various governments, the military, my own individual clients. So, so there's huge opportunity there. You can be an expert witness. There's a lot of opportunity there, but you have to be a good, <laughs> again, you have to be a good expert witness. This sounds awful, <laughs> but some of our expert witnesses, because it's a very strange profession, um, we give advice to the judge or an opinion to the judge. But it's opinion, it's opinion evidence, which is evidence that only an expert witness can give. But you remember one side or the other side will pay you. But it's very important if you do go into the expert witness field that you don't have ethical flexibility first. And secondly, that you are always aware that you don't work for the party that pays you. You work for the court to give the court the best information so that it can uh, proceed with a just and fair sentence. So sometimes people get a little bit confused and if they're working for the defense, they give really low sentences. And if they're working for the prosecution, they give really high sentences. So you just have to be very, very, if you're going into this field, you have to be completely objective. You cannot have a personality that's driven by emotion in any Mm. way because you have to be able to disassociate from everything and look at it in in a very big picture. So yes, there are definitely opportunities with the criminal courts, but they're also all going cyber. So if you're a really good hacker and you've got really good experience, you can go into the hacking, you can do criminology, but if you have a specialist in the IT side or the hacking side, you can become a specialist cyber investigator i think you're inspiring a lot of folks out there to take up the helm and and try to help on that side of the house but i'm sure there are also people that are listening that are now fascinated by this realm of criminology and they want to do it do more in their work from that aspect so for the folks that want to understand the mindset of a criminal hacker they want to understand the psychology 
What are some of the best ways for them to learn about this subject and then incorporate it into their day-to-day work? That's a very difficult one because there hasn't been a lot of research into the mind of the hacker. I mean, serial killers have been done to death. Rapists have been done to death. But hackers haven't really been studied. And there's a couple of reasons for that. They live in a veil of invisibility. So you would have to go to conferences like DEF CON to even find them to fill in questionnaires, to find out how they perceive themselves. So yeah, that's a little bit of a, of a tricky one, but they can always contact me. I'm happy to share. Um, I would be very happy to do seminars for any companies that are, that are interested in learning more. I train internal threat to companies to teach them how to at least mitigate internal threat, which is very important. And I train people on the mindset of, of cyber predators. So cyber stalkers, cyber harassment, how to manage those types of incidents. You can visit my website. It's www.cyberetti.com. I'm sure you guys can put in a link to that. And um, yeah, I'm always happy to share knowledge and info and help and do podcasts. So, you know, I'm I'm here. Reach out. (laughs) And, you know, we just want to thank you for giving us a masterclass in the mind of a criminal hacker. And I know you just dropped your website, but is there any other way that folks can stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on? Well, we're on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very, very bad at Twitter, but I do post occasionally. (laughs) And for the old folks out there, we are on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not the the young, the young ones platform, but I, we do have a presence on Facebook, but I would say LinkedIn and, and also the website where you can find most of my contact details. Just drop me a mail. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop all of those in the show notes just for everybody to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you have going on. Really appreciate the time, Lori, and we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.